0: Well, this afternoon, we're going to be continuing in our walk through the book of Hebrews, uh, continuing on uh, with the uh, next part of that section of verses 12 through 17 will actually be the last part of this as we continue with the next section of growing in the greater than from chapter 12, 1 uh, through the end of the book. Uh, Before we... uh, Again begin, though. Let's hear from Hebrews chapter 12, uh, 1 through 17, for the sake of hearing all the context. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it, see, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it become defiled. See to, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this that we have heard, your holy word. Not simply words on a page, but rather your words, your voice to us and as we engage in the study of this section of scripture we pray that we receive your word here as it is your truth help us to believe what your word says we ask our Lord that you would do your work in each of us according to your purposes that you would strengthen and increase our faith by the work of your spirit Would you give each of us, through your word, the truth about Jesus Christ? We pray that from your word today, you would speak to us. We ask that you'd rest upon this preacher, that you would chain him to your word, that he might freely declare truth, and do so with clarity, and with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we approach what we might call the home stretch of the book of Hebrews, which might be a rather long home stretch depending on uh, how things go, uh, we have seen and we look behind at what we have studied, and we've seen these glorious truths of how Jesus is the greater than, being the greatest revelation of how He's greater than Moses and He's greater than and He's <clears throat> greater than the priesthood. And greater than angels, and greater than Moses, and greater than the priesthood, and the greatest sacrifice. And we've seen in chapter, uh, the ending part of chapter 10 and into 11, the vitality and importance and centrality of holding on to this one who is the greater than, that is, continuing to trust him and rest in him, and from that live, and from that even endure various hostilities and here in chapter 12 we've begun the idea of growing in this one who is the greater than growing in him growing in faith in him and growing in the likeness of him we're still focusing on growing in faith in him as we move on we will see more about growing in his likeness we saw at the beginning of chapter 12 he told us to uh, there's a race that we run we run that race Looking to Jesus, that is trusting him, the one who endured all the agonies of the cross because of the joy that was set before us. And so we have this great joy set before us. So we have every reason to endure that which is set before us. We saw that the father disciplines those whom he loves and that the discipline of the Lord, that is his training, both his corrective and his formative training. Is a great blessing to his children. For it is a form of assurance to us. It confirms our assurance that God is with us. That he loves us and cares for us. And then we saw based on that. Thus let us lift up our drooping arms. And and, uh, strengthen our weak knees. And all that has everything to do with continuing to hold on to Christ. And we, and now we've looked at a couple of exhortations starting in chapter 12 and verse uh, 14 in which he says, Strive for peace with everyone or pursue peace with all men and pursue the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That is to pursue based on the fact we've been made, made at peace with all men to, uh, to be at peace with God. We have every reason to pursue peace with all men and to be peaceable. With all men. To be peaceable with all. That doesn't mean we compromise truth. But it means that we engage peacefully. That we live our lives in godliness and quietness. As Paul says in Thessalonians. Minding our own affairs. Working with our own hands. And then to pursue the holiness. Without which no one will see the Lord. Not some sort of just general holiness. But what kind of holiness is necessary to see the Lord? Absolute perfection. Perfection. And to pursue that holiness. And that's a pursuit that never ends in this life. Because we'll never get there in this life. But, but that is the holiness which is ours already in Christ Jesus. And so to pursue it. And now as we've seen last week, we have two uh, amplifiers of that idea. Uh, We the um, uh, several amplifiers of that idea found in verse 15 uh, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root that no root of bitterness or bitter root springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. That is, falling short or falling away from the grace of God, a bitter root that only causes problems. Uh, What we have here, what's translated as sexual immorality, the Greek word being porneia. We'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, And then godlessness is another way of looking at those. And these are amplifiers of... The idea of pursue peace with all men and uh, the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We're going to be dealing with the latter two today the immorality and godliness. And remember, this is not an independent command. It's very hard, as we mentioned last time, it's very hard to translate this into English in such a way, accurately from the way it is in the Greek text, without having a really, really long and unreadable sentence. And so that's why the translators just make it another command, when in reality it reads this way, seeing to it that no one falls, that none among you fall short. You see here the difference in there. It's modifying or clarifying The idea of that to pursue the holiness, uh, to pursue that holiness and to pursue peace with all men, seeing to it that none of these things raise up among you. And remember, this is not primarily about me watching out for myself. Sometimes we struggle with that idea that uh, because we have this idea that I just need to make sure that I get mine. In reality, we are our brother's keeper. Remember the person who said, am I my brother's keeper? Sometimes we might quote that when someone's saying, how's someone doing? Or you're watching out for them. Well, am I his keeper? Well, just remember the person who said that killed the person. That was Cain. We are our brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. And so to watch out for one another. And so the first thing that he says here now in verse 16 is that no one among you is immoral. The Greek word there, as I just mentioned a moment ago, is porneia. You can probably hear in the first part of that uh, a word that we get from that if you you hear it. I'll let you figure that out. But uh, it is most often understood with reference to the seventh commandment. What is the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. Of course, as we went when we went through the uh, teaching on the on the Ten Commandments, when we got to the uh, seventh commandment, just as with all the other commandments, uh, when it gives the commandment, that's actually the the pinnacle of disobedience to the command everything that leads up to that is also a violation of the command and every, and doing not doing things that are consistent with the command is also a violation so under the under all that would fall things like adultery or premarital relations that is of a sinful nature uh lust and pornography or even same-sex sin or transgenderism all those various different uh, things. <clears throat> and it is no doubt that is in view with regards to what he is addressing here. Um, in using that word porneia. Uh, John Owen notes that those who cherish sexual immorality. Always end up in the latter category of being godless. Which we'll talk about what that is in a moment. Um, but also consider 1 Corinthians 6, where he addresses the, that issue of sexual immorality as not, not only being uh, that it is a sin that is particularly difficult and damaging because it is not only a sin against God, but it is a sin against one's body, which is a temple of the Holy Spirit for the Christian who is a temple of the Holy Spirit to engage in sexual immorality is to sin against our own body, it is far more devastating than many other sins in its effects, short of taking a life unjustly. It's not that it is a, a greater sin. But I also want us to take a look at another way of looking at this idea. Consistent uh, with the others that we have addressed, remember falling short of the grace of God. Not has it doesn't have so much to do with sinning away our salvation. We can't sin away our salvation. No one can lose that. One who walks away from Christ is demonstrating maybe they don't know Christ. But yet here the idea is turning away from Christ to other false hopes. That's what it is to fall short of the grace of God, and that in the other one, and then when we have a bitter root, it's not speaking about bitterness in terms of I'm bitter towards somebody, but rather Deuteronomy twenty-seven: see to it that no bitter root rises, a bitter root of unbelief rises up among you. So watching out for one another in that regard, and we see the next one: godlessness has everything to do with, with disregarding the greatness of the things that he had and giving it up for something else. <clears throat> and the Id- way of looking at it is this, is consistent with the others. And, and it also we also need to look at the fact the way this is structured in the Greek text is that it is connected to the next idea, which is connected to Esau. I've actually changed my view on this, by the way. Last week, I actually said in the sermon that they're two separate ideas. As I further studied, I said, I'm wrong. At least I'm probably wrong. But I could be wrong. Okay? And so when it comes to this idea of sexual immorality, nowhere in the canonical scriptures is Esau notorious for sexual immorality. We don't have anywhere in the scriptures where he is named as someone for whom that he was known. At least um, <clears throat> at least not any more than all of those who had multiple wives and had children with the handmaidens of their wives. Here's looking at you, Abraham and Jacob and uh, several others. He's not any more known for that than anyone else. But it's also very difficult to read the word porneia. As being separated from the next word, Bebalos, which is godless, with reference to, to Esau. It's difficult to separate that. It breaks the, the pattern of the Greek grammar to do that. <clears throat> Remember, see, uh, see to it that none, uh, reading it with the consistency, see to it that none among you are falling short of the grace of God, that there is no bitter root springing up among you, that none, none among you are uh, pornos or pornea, then it simply says or godless. There's no among you before it, um, and it's the oh, there's it's the only two words that are connected with an or, indicating they're being tied together as the same idea, and it would be it's a real stretch to tie uh, some sort of sexual immorality to Esau. Uh, other, to Esau because we don't have anything in the canonical scriptures that says so. There is things in the other, other, other writings between 400 BC and, and when Jesus came that indicate that, but those are not canon. We don't, know the, we don't know anything whether that's true or not. Also, sexual immorality as such is properly addressed later in chapter 13, verse 4, with keep the marriage bed pure. So what is another option here of how we could look at this idea of Pornea? What's another way that we could look at this? Hebrews is steeped in a background in the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. There are all sorts of references and allusions. Remembering that this book was written to Jewish, most likely written to Jewish believers, well versed. In such ideas. All the imagery from the temple. All the imagery from the priesthood. All the imagery from the tabernacle. All the imagery from all the various different ways and commands. And showing how Christ is greater than all those. And fulfills all the things to which they were pointing. So what's one way that we could look at this? I'd like for us to consider two different examples that use the imagery of porneia in the Old Testament that point to something beyond it. I wish for us to turn, first of all, to the book of Hosea. I'm not going to read the whole book. I'm going to give you the summary. We don't have time to read the whole book. But the book of Hosea is a unique situation in that the prophet Hosea is commanded by God to do something. And that thing that he is commanded to do is to take for his wife a woman who, was, who in the Hebrew was called a harlot. Could be prostitute, but either a woman who is known for not being faithful or a woman who um, <clears throat> was a known adulteress or maybe even a prostitute. And of course, he took her as his wife and commandment in, in, in obedience to God. And it was not long that she... Committed adultery against him. And the Lord used that on two occasions to give an object lesson of her own sexual immorality, her own adultery, as an illustration of Israel's own idolatry rooted in unbelief. And one thing that is wonderful about the book of Hosea, as I must note, if we read the book of Hosea, it is dripping and saturated with the grace and mercy of God. For he says, you were like that. But when he told Hosea, take her back, this is he says, this is what I do for my people. Even though you do this to me, I love you and I keep you as my own. Because his grace is greater than all of our sin. I'd like for us to consider another example and again I'm not going to read it in part because I will probably blush if I were to read it. But if we turn to the book of Ezekiel in chapter in the book of Ezekiel, there's a chapter with very very poignant language with regards to Israel's unbelief and idolatry using metaphors, that's word pictures. Of adultery and other violations of the seventh commandment. And again I'm not going to read it here. As I would probably struggle to read it. But you can turn to Ezekiel 23 on your own time if you wish. And read it for yourself. But you can see the language uh, that he uses. With using the the imagery of adultery. And uh, what we would call pornea And uses it to show their faithlessness and their idolatry. Even in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30. Someone actually mentioned this to me the other day and I didn't th- hadn't thought of it. But he said, but Matthew 12, 30 says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. I don't know that we can limit when he says adulterous generation specifically to the sin of adultery there. Rather, once again, see, it makes most sense to read it as a word picture consistent with the Old Testament imagery of how God's people, the nation of Israel, was being adulterous towards God. And yet, he has grace for us. And there, while a different word is used uh, for adulteress—not pornea, but uh, uh, moicalis—it's the same usage. It's typically used for specifically for adultery, but there is also imagery here. He's not referring specifically to that sin based on the context, but as a metaphor for their refusal to see Jesus for who he is and to disbelieve God. So all that to say, here's another option I'd like for us to consider in looking at this. He's not, and while he's not referring specifically, directly, if you will, to acts of sexual immorality, acts of porneia, but pointing to that which is the root of all sins which is turning from God in disbelief. Again, can see, all of these are different ways of saying, essentially the, saying the same thing, all these four different commands. It is in faith in Christ that we have the fountain of all of our life. It is that by faith in Christ that we have been made right with God, in that His righteousness has been counted on to us, His righteous life, and His and in His death, our sin has been removed from us, and we and all of that is known. What is known as justification, and it is in faith in Christ. That we have the benefit of sanctification. And that we have been set apart for God. And that his spirit is at work in us. And the outworking of that is growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ. It is something that he, he gives for all of his people. And the fountain of all that is faith in Jesus Christ. Resting in him and receiving from him. Faith has all sorts of fruits. But those fruits are not faith itself. Our own confession states in chapter fourteen: the principal act of faith is this—resting in, resting in, and receiving from Jesus Christ. David De Silva says, while the author of Hebrews certainly does enjoin. Uh, uh, issues regarding sexual immorality see, Such as in chapter 13 verse 4 He may still be focused entirely upon the driving issue Of, fa- of faithfulness to God re- versus unfaithfulness Distrust and straying away And so what, it, what are we saying here What are we watching out for We're watching out for one another That we are not turning away from Jesus Christ And thus adulterating ourselves towards God so my brothers and sisters, we must watch one another that we are continuing to look to Jesus Christ. And what, are we, what did we learn in Hebrews chapter 10? Those four commands that we had there of let us draw near, let us hold fast. Um, <clears throat> let us draw near, let us hold fast and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. And then, of course, the capstone on that is this another modifier, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Remember, in early Christianity, they didn't have Bibles to take home. And the ordinary means God uses is not uh, to grow us while it includes our own private Bible study. It's driven by life in the context of the body of believers. We must ensure that we are exhorting one another to participate in the life of the body of Christ. And that when a brother comes to us and says, a sister comes to us and says, brother, I'm struggling with this sin. One of our first reactions might be to go and grab the metaphorical sledgehammer and hammer, him, hammer them over the head. This is a person coming saying, I'm struggling. What do we do? We point them to Jesus Christ, to his grace, to his mercy, to confess his sins and to seek repentance, to seek turning away from that. Because God is rich in grace and mercy. And so we ourselves too must ensure we continue to turn to Christ Jesus. Even in the wake of the awareness of our own sinfulness. The next thing he addresses is or godless. Again the Greek word there is. I mentioned earlier is. Bebelos. My friend uh, David Allen. While he and I are probably miles apart on what we would call on things that would be important to me. Um, he's an Armenian and I'm not. He's a friend of mine. But when it comes to languages and the structure of text, he's second to none. But my friend David Allen, he says of this word, it connotes that which is worldly, godless, and describes one who has no appreciation for spiritual things and who treats them with contempt. So this idea of godless and we see that we see these two ideas illustrated in the person of esau but we'll talk about that in just a moment but consider the original audience the jewish believers who in the face of persecution were being tempted or the idea of returning to judaism or of making their Christianity a little more palatable to Judaism in order to avoid persecution either at the hands of of the Jews or at the hands of Romans, because in early Christianity, Judaism was an accepted religion, Christianity was not. And so if you could make yourself look like you were more in an accepted religion, then you could face less persecution from the Roman Empire. But tempted to, to return to the sacrificial system. But that sacrificial system, the Mosaic Covenant, is done. It's completed its purposes. It's never coming back. The Mosaic Covenant is complete. Christ has come. The greatest sacrifice has come. The high priest has come. And to return to something that is now done and has no and has no ability and never did have any ability to bring about righteousness and perfection is to turn, isn't the ultimate, is the highest of follies. Is to turn not to something but to nothing. But yet well it's easy to look at that and say, Yeah, how silly were they? How easy you and I forget the many good things that God has done for us. And that we turn to our own devices. We turn to our own minds, our own hearts and say, I can do it. It's in me. But it is not in you and me. I I seem to have lost it. But I had a, as a, when I was a, a baby Christian, I had this Bible that I cherished. It was a, a single column NIV. Um, and I read it over and over and over again. And I read Galatians and I marked it up. And my comment at the end of the book of Galatians, I put in big bold letters, was, oh, how quickly we forget the, th- the things that God has done for us. The Galatians were uh, being told that Christ and what he had done was not enough. They needed to add Various different works for their Christianity to be complete. But Christ is all. He is the gospel. He did everything. Being willing to trade the glorious gospel of grace for an inferior means based on works. And for a church to do that. Part of us watching out for one another is that we as a church remain faithful to such things. The moment we exchange the gospel of Christ for something else, we have ceased to be a gospel church. We have ceased to be a, a body of Christ. We've become something, but it's no longer Christian. And regardless of the relationship of Pornea to Bebelos here, and Esau, all the commentary, whether it would be the ancient fathers from the first few centuries of Christianity uh, to the reformers or to more modern commentary, it places all the focus uh, of the of this this verse, chapter sixteen, verse sixteen, I should say, upon here, Bebelos and Esau. And so, as an example, he gives Esau. Now, when I was again as a baby Christian, I read the story of esau and jacob and when i read it not knowing any better i, I, I thought esau's the good guy in this story that was my first thought I it, esau's the good guy in this story he got duped by his brother but of course esau was no great man either as we see the hebrews gives us the interpretation of that event One of the principal rules of interpretation is that there is only one infallible interpreter of the Holy Scriptures. And it's not me. It's not another pastor, but rather it is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has interpreted things for us right here. This is where we see the interpretation of the Holy Spirit is here in the Scriptures. And he explains it for us why Esau was the bad guy there. We see the background if you wanted to go and read it uh, at some point in time in Genesis 25 and Genesis chapter 27. Esau and Jacob in the womb of Rebekah were at war with one another, even in the womb. And when Esau came out first, Jacob's hand was holding on to his ankle, to Esau's ankle. He was, they were battling with each other, even in the womb. And they had conflict as twins but Esau was born first so he had the right the right of being the firstborn the right of the firstborn is typically this it's not that the firstborn gets everything and everyone else gets nothing that's not what firstborn is it's right it's first and foremost right to the title of the family right to carry on the family's lineage right to carry on the family's business so to speak and in terms of wealth and such, the firstborn received a double portion of what everyone else received. <clears throat> along, with it, along with the lands and carry the lineage. So for example, with two, the firstborn would get twice what the other would. So basically two-thirds. If there were four, the firstborn would get half. Because it would be divided up into fourths, but one of them gets double that. So the firstborn would get half. We also saw that Esau was a hunter, and Jacob stayed and he worked the land. Some people have said that uh, Jacob favored his mother, Rebekah, while Esau favored his father, Isaac. and I think we can see that in the text. But one day Esau came home from hunting, and he was hungry. He had hunger pangs. Now some of us, when we come home, we're hungry, and we don't feel like making anything. And so we might pick up the phone and call something. Or we might just grab something that's all ready to go out of the freezer. Of course, then they didn't have the freezer. If you wanted to eat something, uh, you had to prepare it, most likely from scratch. And so he was hungry and he wanted something to eat. Well, Jacob had made a stew or a soup that he had made for himself. And Esau said, I've been out hunting. Give me some of your soup. And Jacob said, okay, but it's going to cost you your birthright. Your title as firstborn, what you get as firstborn, I get if you want a bowl of my soup. And so Esau then said, no, nah, it's not worth that. Nope, that's not what he said. He said, okay. And so for a bowl of soup, he sold his birthright. And here in the book of Hebrews, it says he despised it. He regarded it as not having value. It could very well be that Esau thinking, yeah, no one's going to know about this. I'm still going to get it. You never know. <clears throat> but furthermore, in chapter 27, we see this working out in Jacob's favor. When Jacob and, when Jacob and his mother, Rebekah, uh, conspired to trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob. Rebecca knew the favorite stew that uh, Esau made that um, that Isaac liked. And so she said, I'm going to make this and you're going to put on sheepskins because Esau was apparently a hairy man. So you're going to put on these skins and we're going to think he's going to touch you and see that you're Esau. And so and Isaac was pretty much blind. And so he uh, Isaac, based on what we see in the text, was initially kind of suspicious. But then he realized he said, OK, this is Esau. And he gave the blessing to Jacob. Take note of this. Esau considered easing a very temporary circumstance as more important than his birthright. Thus he sold it for a bowl of soup. Using the language of porneia, he adulterated himself out and acted godlessly by despising his birthright. But it wasn't so much the hunger it was how he regarded his birthright. He despised it. It was of no importance to him. He was more interested in sating his temporary hunger than the vastness of his birthright. And whenever we look at difficulty and suffering and we say like, like Israel, I want to go back to Egypt. What are we saying? We're saying that our temporary circumstance is more important than that is of than that is of than that what is of infinite value. Considering holding on to the greater than what we have in Him is of infinite value, and not to be neglected or despised by turning to other gospels to relieve, relieve ourselves of temporary turmoil yet we do we actually do that all the time you and i do that all the time that's all the more reason we need to keep running to jesus the one who has secured for us our birthright our hope is not in what we see or in what we can touch it is in the person of christ jesus But have have any of you ever touched Jesus? Not expecting to see any hands. Has any of you ever seen Jesus with your eyes? Yeah, none of us have. But yet he is our hope. Our hope does not lie in the things that we can touch and that we can see in our proverbial bowls of soup. But they lie in Christ Jesus. Jesus. And so our focus must, as a church, our focus must always be on Jesus Christ. Individually, we must keep our focus on that which we have in him. That which we have in him must be declared, must be believed, must be held on to. And growth will come. What do we have without Jesus, our Christ? Nothing. It's not something, it's nothing. If we are to persevere, we must be fully aware of what is ours in Christ Jesus. We must be fully aware of what we have in him. If we are to persevere, if we are to grow, if we are to hold on, hold on to him, we must know what we have in him. And we must be sure of it. So we must bathe ourselves in the gospel of grace. Turning to him In the awareness of our own sinfulness. Something we also learn. From Esau. Is this. That today is the day. Today is the day. Esau. It says. That when he. When he realized what had happened. For you know that afterward. When he desired to inherit the blessing. He was rejected for he found no chance to repent. Though he sought it with tears that when he, when he went to his father and said, Bless me, Father. And he said, Who are you? He said, Well, I'm Esau. And Isaac said, Oh, we've been duped, but it's too late. I've already given the blessing. And he said, Still bless me, Father. So he gave him a blessing which was had some curse built into it. And afterwards, of course, Esau said, put his purpose in his heart, I'm going to destroy Jacob and I. From a human perspective. I can understand where Esau was coming from there. But he despised his birthright. When Esau realized. What he did. What that. What he didn't have. It was too late. There was. uh, From the perspective of. Just simply living life in Christ. There's no getting back lost time. There's no undoing. The, the, and the, just as there was no undoing of the passing of the blessing to Jacob. Praise the Lord that he redeems us in our circumstances and in our failures. He redeems all those. But there's no getting back lost time. Just as with the parable of the, of the longing father. That, that son who, I'm speaking of what you probably know as the parable of the prod, prodigal son. But the parable of the longing father, that son who had departed. He's not getting back that lost time. There's no getting back that lost time. But furthermore, at the judgment, it will be too late for all those who refuse to find refuge from their sin in Christ Jesus. And for all those who, though having the appearance of having Jesus, so turned from him. He even sought it with weeping. There was no amount of weeping that he could do. For in that day, there will be great weeping and gnashing of teeth. What have we if we despise that which belongs to God's people in Christ Jesus? What hope have we? But praise be to God that in Christ we have all that hope. And to the great temptation and how often we do cave into that temptation to turn elsewhere for our comfort and our assurance. You've heard this many times, but I'm going to say it many more times. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism says, what is my only comfort in life and in death? It's not that I've got everything going my way. It's not that everything is, is, is smooth sailing. It's this. That I am not my own, but that I belong body and soul to my, my Lord Jesus Christ, my faithful Savior, who made redemption for my si- who who died for my sins, And not one hair can fall from my head apart from his saying that it's okay. That is our comfort and our assurance. It is not having a seat at the table at the tables of princes and powerful people in the world. It is not even that if princes or kings favor us. That's not our hope. As a matter of fact, I would warn that the, the quest to gain power and influence is, by and large, a fool's errand. Because gaining power and influence involves all sorts of compromise, usually. Or whether it would be more accepted in the world. That, hey, we need to make Christianity more palatable to the world. So we need to get rid of some things that are unacceptable to the world. In the 18th century, that's the 1700s, a German theologian said just that. He said the influence of Christianity is waning. People are disregarding us because we live in a world now that doesn't believe in miracles. We live in a scientific world. So we but we need Christianity to still have an influence, so we need to change. So let's do away with miracles and resurrections. And focus on the husk of Moral aptitude and moral life. And what did he do? He robbed Christianity of its power. His name was Frederick Schleiermacher. And he started him. He was one of the starters of a big movement of doing that. We might consider our comfortable lives of more worth than holding on to Christ. And what this brings us. Is is to this, all the more reason to live by faith in Christ and rest in Him, and keep turning to Him in our awareness of our sinfulness. If we wish to grow, this is what we need. To keep holding on to Jesus Christ, and we will grow. We should desire to grow, and we every Christian desires to grow. But if we try to take shortcuts, if we try to do it in our own ways we will fall into one of these four categories. So brothers and sisters, in closing, indeed we have a great Savior who is a greater than, who is the greater than, as we're going to see in about three weeks. Which is going to be next week, but it's going to be three weeks now. But you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, the sound of a trumpet and voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. Rather, we have come to a kingdom that cannot be shaken to a a mediator whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel. Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. Christ's blood cried out for mercy on our behalf. So let us keep holding on to Christ Jesus. And in so doing, we will endure in faith and we will endure in sanctification. Let us pray. Father, blessed be your name. And we thank you for the goodness that we have in Christ Jesus. Help us to never forget that. That we might not look at a bowl of soup whether literal or metaphorical, as being of greater value than what we have in Christ Jesus. And when we do, let us keep running back to that cross of Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name.